Hello, and welcome to SF Crossing the Gulf. This is going to be a bit of a, uh, uh, how do you say, in between. A very special episode. <laughs> a very special episode, an in between season episode referencing some stuff that we talked about in season two. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And today we also have with us the, a, another renowned podcaster, Gary K. Wolf. Hi, glad to be here. And, of course, Gary is a professor at Roosevelt University, a senior contributing editor to Locus Magazine, and the Hugo Award-nominated podcaster with Jonathan Strawn at uh, the Notes from Coon Street. So you see why we had to have <laughs> sort of validate some things you can see. <laughs> <laughs> or not, you know. Or, or not. <laughs> could be completely different. So uh, what we thought we'd have Gary uh, come on and talk about this, this time was uh, Cordwainer Smith. And you might say, but Karens, you've spent two episodes talking about Cordwainer Smith already. And we say yes, and there's still more to say. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, and, mo- and more than that, I came to Cordwainer Smith as somebody discovering um, the author of You. And it's always interesting to get the background of somebody who's, who's been able to, to research a bit more of Smith's life and his approach and everything like that. So I am very interested in what Gary has to say. Um, you actually sent us a, a very cool article talking a bit about Alpha Alpha Boulevard and some mm-hmm. of the background to that. I think the um, the name that's going to be coming up, and we should credit him for all this, is Alan C. Elms, who's a, a psychobiographer. Um, he's done one book of psychobiography that included actually people like B.F. Skinner and Elvis, and there was a chapter on Cordwainer Smith in that, and he's been working doing enormous amounts of research for decades now um, into Smith's life, and he found out clever things that uh, uh, some of them are speculative, some of them he has hard evidence from Smith's family, um, and it's all strikes me as just being a kind of literary detective work that we all want to do sometime. Um, I mean, my sense of Smith is probably like yours, Karen, that when you first start reading Smith, you, you just want to know more. You want to figure out where these strange words and concepts come from. And you feel like everybody I know who's discovered Cordwainer Smith at some point felt like they were the only one who discovered Cordwainer Smith and they were going to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> sounds, it sounds very hipster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yes, the, the article that uh, Alan Elms published in the most recent copy of Science Fiction Studies... Um, makes me want to read the biography that he is obviously capable of writing at this point. And it just makes me want to shake him by the lapels and, and go, <laughs> why, haven't, why haven't you written this biography yet so I can read it? And there are, there are earlier articles and earlier issues of science fiction studies that are also parts of it. There's one called The Making of, uh, I think called The Making of Cordwainer Smith. Um, I think that, uh, I, I don't know the story and we should contact him and find out, but um, I, th- there was a gap of m- more than 10 years, I think, when nothing appeared from him. I know during that period he retired, uh, and now that presumably he's you know, in retirement, he's got time to complete the biography, and the first evidence of that is this article on Alpha Ralpha Boulevard, <clears throat> which for one thing that absolutely fascinated me is I'd never figured out where the name Alpha Ralpha Boulevard came from. Yeah, yeah, just that by itself is worth the, worth the price of admission for that article. Yes, yes. Did you, particularly, oh, sorry? Uh, go ahead. No, saying that, that particularly tickled me because um, they were talking about um, Ralph Alpher, who is known for an article, um, a, a physics article, physical astronomy article, mm-hmm. with um, Alpher, Beth, Beta, and Gamma, 
And that was such a running joke when I was a physics student. <laughs> that, um, and probably yeah. for you too, Karen, right? Yep, yep. Um, that when I, when I read the article and I saw that, I was like, oh, shoot, of course. Like, it was <laughs> just hilarious to me, yeah. Yeah, they pointed out that in he was teaching at the same university that Linebarger was, and in the faculty directory, he would have been listed as Alpha Ralph A. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Alpha, Alpha Ralph. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and also by being associated with the Big, big Bang Theory, he sort of made sense, uh, you know, as, as, as a kind of subtle illusion. But um, mm-hmm. there were just, uh, I mean, the kinds of multilingual puns that he made um, throughout his career are just sort of utterly fascinating. And I think one of the things that Elms does very well is he connects these things to real believable speculations. Um, the, the first two mainstream novels that Smith published were published under the name Felix Forrest, um, which apparently is a translation back into English of a transliteration of Paul Leinbarger into Chinese. If, 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 somehow, if you, if you translate Paul Leinbarger into Chinese, the characters come out spelling something like Forest of Incandescent Bliss. Actually, I think so, Chinese so, names tend to be assigned a little differently. It's it's not phonetic at all. Um, well, yeah. But yeah, yeah, but that Felix Forrest is the the is a way of bringing his assigned Chinese name back into English. Right, but he's taking incandescent, incandescent and translating that into Latin with Felix. Yeah. So we'll just have like three languages involved now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's all sorts of stuff in this article about you know some of his his youth in in um, in China and then in the states and then his first marriage and and fascinating uh, and dramatic life. Let's put it up. Very dramatic, yeah, absolutely. Although I I do feel a little um, sort of sort of justified or backed up when I was first discussing Alpha Ralph Boulevard, and I remember I remember vaguely saying something along the lines of maybe this was about his first marriage, you know the character, the main character is called Paul, mm-hmm. that's his real name, and, and it seems to be, it's, it's almost the feel of it was almost a more psychological than scientific approach in, in the in story, and in, in the sense that the other stories to me were a lot more about the universe and how society how it was changing gradually, but this one seemed very, almost eternal, um, almost quasi, I don't want to say quasi-religious because I don't want to give the sense of institutional religion, but in the sense of trying to find the meaning of things. I, I think so. I think he, it, it's, it's, it's certainly a love story. It's, and again, apparently based on that uh, 18th century French novel called Paul and Virginie, or Virginie and, um, and on that painting, which I'm forgetting now, it's not a Corot painting, but... Uh, yeah, let's see, Elms, Elms talks about that. Uh, let's see if, I've got the article up here. Okay. I can find it. But he clearly had, um, had treated this story as kind of a romance, and the, it, it has some of the heightened romantic, uh, hyper-romantic dialogue in it, like, where is my own true love? <laughs> yeah. Oh, let's see. The a painting by Pierre Auguste Cot that hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Art sometimes, and is titled uh, "Le Orage, the Storm." Yeah. And I Orage. actually i I googled that and and took a look at the at the painting. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that's that's yeah, two it's, people it's... in a storm, definitely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. although, although it's done in very classical Greek 
values of, right. of art. But there is that scene in the story where they're caught in the typhoon. Yep. And there's something about um, scraps of white paper or some white matter near their feet, which is supposed to echo the time when he has those broken eggs near his feet. Well, that's one of the things I think is is, is fascinating about about his, I guess his approach to morality generally is he he loves to talk about very trivial, minor, minute, recognizable everyday things in in the same sentence as sort of these vast concepts. In other words, the very small and the very large go together. When I was looking at um, Alpha Alpha Boulevard, the sentence struck me again that blew me away the first time I read it when I was a kid, which is, I myself was the first first person to put a postage stamp on a letter in 14,000 years. Yeah. Okay, you've got the most familiar image in the world in a sentence that's about 14,000 years. Uh, And he does that both in terms of giving you the sense of immediacy and expansiveness in the same sentence but he he does that with morality like the business about not stepping on those little bird eggs which seems like a completely throwaway line until they end up being rescued partly because of that act and um paul says i think toward the end of the story is that all there is to good and bad yeah yeah, and yeah. it's interesting because um, you know, for all, especially towards his later work, where the the themes of the the old strong um, religion come in, you know, th- throughout all his work, he's he's got a very core humanism. That that um, for instance, I notice it in Egan as well. Mm-hmm. You know that just that that sort of sense of you know if people would just <laughs> would just you know be nice. Oh, go ahead, Karen. No, I was just going to say that um, what, I, what I find interesting, not so much with Egan, but in terms of a lot of other science fiction writers, is that sometimes they tend to examine the question of morality by looking at, for example, how robots may be treated or artificial intelligence. But, um, but Smith tends to, to stress the, the concept of what if animals, you know, the under people who are basically kind of almost like um, animals uplifted in a sense or are sort of between the animals that can't communicate and animals that can think more. Mm-hmm. And, and then he does these things like, as you say, the bird eggs, not crushing the bird eggs. And then later on, um, on the gem planet, about giving that horse, you know, sort of a happy end of life. There's, there's this example of treating animals well as your sort of mirror for morality um, and in a science fiction setting where as I said that's so often put on artificial intelligence or robots or or even heavily modified people like sort of hybrids between machine and man yeah, I found it interesting that he went back to that kind of basic he, he, he clearly treats the under people as um, as an un- well there, there there are various kinds of subordinate classes I mean they're, they're the Habermen in the uh, scanners live in vain uh, there are the certainly the under people, and then there are the animals themselves, uh, yeah. all of which play very important roles. And, and, and again, the the character Kamel, who shows up here and then gets her own story, uh, is subject to what what amounts to a kind of really old fashioned racism. And one of the things I thought was interesting about the story is what causes Virginia 
I, I assume we're not worrying about spoilers since. No, no. We, we've always declared this podcast to be a if you care about spoilers, don't listen. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can go on about spoilers, but what struck me is that what causes Virginia to fall to her death is that she's repelled by the touch of Kamel. Yeah. She is, she is so disgusted by being touched by a cat person that she, you know, sort of yanks herself back and falls off the boulevard. Now, here's a fascinating thing. Let me go back to that article we've been talking about. And the parallels are made with the original Paul and Virginie. The, the idea there is that the Virginie character, she dies because she is drowning and she refuses to strip off her clothes, um, and which are pulling her down. So in that sense, the, there's another layer of interpretation there where uh, Virginia kind of shrinking from Camille is more shrinking from Camille's overt sexuality. Mm-hmm. as opposed to just the sense of her being another person. And even even her problems with Kamel really come from this idea that um, her sexuality is a threat, you know, her overt sexuality is a threat. So it's, 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 it's hard for me to see that purely in terms of just, you know, here's the press group. She really does seem, given the background and the origins of the story, to also represent this sort of um, suppressed um, sexuality. And um, ability to deal with that. Well, I think they may have been at the time Smith was growing up. They may have been related. I mean, there was there was the same notion. Sexuality in the, in the states was frequently connected with uh, with race. The idea that uh, you know the, the idea that people who would have been popular singers or when when Lineberger was. Uh, was writing people like Eartha Kitt and Lena Horne were considered threats not only racially but sexually, um, mm-hmm. and and I think Tina Turner sort of picked up that tradition. There's a fascinating passage. This is kind of going off on, on a tangent, but one of um, Brian Aldiss's mainstream novels, Forgotten Life, has a passage in it where the character who is clearly based on Brian Aldiss goes to see a Tina Turner concert and is just almost devastated by it. He just cannot deal with this degree of you know sexual energy. And it's 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 kind of a you know Oxfordian version of the same thing, but I think that you're right. I think the sexuality is is certainly part of Kamel's threat and part of her appeal uh, as she shows up later. Well, I also feel um, okay. So I had a, an interesting experience, um, Gary. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, there was a, a small collection of of Cordwainer Smith stories. It, it came out before he died, apparently, and. I found a copy in a used bookstore down in Galveston. and so that I, will never be the same? I think it, it, it's either that or it might be We the Under People. Oh, okay. It's dedicated to his black servant woman who had died in his house. Hmm. And it's a whole page-long dedication, and it's kind of rambly, and it's very odd, and he's he's obviously working through it, like... And, and he talks to her directly. He addresses her directly and basically says, I realize how little I knew about you, even though we saw each other every day. Huh. Kind of thing. And it was, it was almost disturbing to read because it's, comes, it's you know, rooted in such a different culture of race relations um, than what I've grown up with. But it, it obviously it showed to me how much that was something he was consciously aware of, um, at both how much he was benefiting from it and how much he didn't know about the community you know the black community around him Mm. and it was really interesting it's fascinating because i suspect he spent so much time abroad and really settled in the states only after the war that um 
possibly the most alien community to him was the African-American community. Certainly, he lived in Germany, he lived in Japan, he lived in China, uh, he lived in Hawaii. He, he certainly was aware and very sophisticated, in a very sophisticated way of a lot of cultures around the world, but uh, that's one culture he seemed to have no entry into at all. So he may have been just fascinated by it. But not to the extent of, of really actually writing about it. I mean, there's def definitely the, um, the, the Chinese influence shows some of the stories that I read, at least. Right. But, I, but there's, there's very little in terms of actual kind of African-American representation. Right, right. Um, unless, unless you mentioned a story that I didn't want to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which I will do briefly since it sort of slipped out of my mouth. But um, we were actually going to look at Under Old Earth. And the main character, who is not necessarily explicitly described as African American, but who is definitely, shall we say, darker of skin. Well, wait. Um, I, I, wouldn't call, I wouldn't call that the main character. The sorry. Main, the main uh, character is the judge who's going down. Or sorry, the, the ward of the instrumentality who's going down. <laughs> fair enough, yeah. Um, but. I don't know, the main antagonist in a way? Yeah, yeah, you could yeah. say that. Yeah, he's, he's called Sunboy, and um, he seems to have the power of, of dancing nonstop. And I was reading the story, and I had a perpetual frown on my face, and I basically said to Karen, I'm not sure what I can say about this story. I'm not sure what's going on here, but lots of money does not make me very comfortable, so maybe we can uh -huh. skip this one. And I'm still, I'm, still, I'm still trying to think about it a bit, and I'm trying to figure out what exactly he was doing with it. But it's it's a bit it's a bit of a mystery to me. Well, in the one of the things one of the reasons I, I picked it out it came from 1966 and it was one of the last stories that he had published before he died, mm. and it's him at his full command of the craft. Um, certainly, I I've always found that the language in that story is is um, extraordinary, especially the way he's able to capture the rhythms of the music that Sunboy is playing. But yeah, again, in terms of coded racial statements and um yeah there's a lot there that you would need to unpack and it's not very comfortable yeah yeah but and if I, anybody knows more about it than i do <laughs> i would love to, i would love to hear comments or or you know sort of lines of questioning or anything like that but uh, I, I wanted to back up a little bit um gary you said reading reading cordwainer smith when you were a kid i mean i know you wrote an article about uh, game of rat and dragon back in the day how how long had i mean when did you first encounter um cordwainer smith ah that's a good question i must have uh i must have run across a story in an anthology and i'm i'm guessing it probably was scanners live in vain um and then at some point um there was, so I'd seen stories in anthologies, and at some point, long before the uh, New England Science Fiction Association's omnibus volume, there was a best of Cordwainer Smith that Ballantyne published. And I got that, and I just was utterly hypnotized, because I think there's, there's some writers in every generation who um, maybe, maybe they know the science fiction that preceded them, and maybe they've read it. I'm pretty sure Leinbarger had read science fiction but who aren't interested in writing what they've read. They're interested um, in the idea of inventing science fiction from the ground up. So it's very difficult in Cordwainer Smith to trace. I mean, it, it, the source tracing is fascinating. You, you, you go back to 18th century French novels. You go back to uh, Chinese mythology. You go back to uh, multilinguistic puns. It's hard to trace very much of this stuff back to earlier science fiction. It's just like... You had the sense that, and of course, the rumor that was going around among readers of Galaxy and If in the early 50s was, since nobody had any idea who Cordwainer Smith was, that, uh, oh, these, these stories probably were sent 
from the future, and uh, and Fred Pohl isn't telling us this because they're not really written by anybody. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> there, were, there, were, there were the rumors about Cordwainer Smith, most of which I heard you know later on secondhand, were exactly that. This is somebody who comes out of nowhere. You can't find Heinlein. You, I mean, you, you can find parallels with Heinlein, but you can't find direct influences. Oh no, no, no from no, no, earlier no. science fiction at all. So it's like this is somebody who just is almost saying to all the other science fiction writers in the world, no, you got it wrong. This is the future. <laughs> and and yeah. it's so utterly convincing. How can you argue with it? And actually, then, the, the concordance, the Cordwainer Smith concordance, accepts yeah, that as have, its con conceit, which is just really weird. Well, what I was also wondering, when you talk about him having sort of um, not drawing on people who wrote before him, one of the questions we asked on the podcast is how many people nowadays can be said to be writing the traditional coordinator Smith? Um, we've been getting a, a few, couple of answers, but I'd be curious to hear your take on that. Well, the tradition, that's a good question. Uh, and the tradition of coordinator Smith, I would say, doesn't necessarily mean writing like coordinator Smith or writing in a coordinator Smith kind of universe. There are people who've done that. Actually, Norman Spinrad uh, did a very good coordinator Smith kind of novel called Child of Fortune. Hmm. Um, but by, by the tradition of Cordwainer Smith, I would think of people who, like I said, reinvent science fiction from the ground up, who think of uh, the way the imagination works in constructing a science fictional world and take that from ground zero. I think Ted Chang does that. Um, ah. His fiction doesn't look like Cordwainer Smith, but it doesn't look like it depends on any other science fiction either. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Mm um, I think before Cordwainer Smith, maybe, oh, Stanley Weinbaum did that sort of thing. I think during the period that Smith was doing it, Lafferty did something of the same sort of thing. I think probably David Marasek was in this category, although he's not, he's got another novel which he's, he's, he's finished but hasn't been published yet. But he, he had a very unusual, bizarre future with things like the wedding album. Um, and there are not very many people that actually do that because so many science fiction writers write within the context of other science fiction or write within the dialogue of other science fiction. And it seemed to me that Smith and Chang and Marisak and a few other people just basically said, I don't care what the dialogue is, I'm making up my own futures. I'm making up my own versions of science fiction. I have to admit, Stanley Weinbaum is my favorite of the pre-Campbell science fiction writers. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there was just that sense of fun with him where it was like, hey, look, I can do anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to put this on Mars, but okay, it's just on Mars. And after that, I'm making everything up as I go along. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I suspect there are some, um, I suspect there are some European or, um, well, you know what? Uh, now that I, that I think about it, I think there's some of that going on in uh, Nettie Okora for his first two YA novels. Mm, okay. Where she's, she, she's bar borrowing from West African traditions and Nigerian traditions and, and obviously has read science fiction, but she's sort of, like I say, she's reimagining it as though, as though she were the first person to think of science fiction. Mm -hmm. and, and those are the people, those are the kinds of writers who I think I would put in a Cordwainer Smith tradition. Now, uh, there, there have been people who've explicitly called out Cordwainer Smith as an influence. I mean, even uh, Tobias Buckel wrote a, a Game of Rat and Dragon uh, mm -hmm. in, inspired story. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't far future and it wasn't the same plot, but, um, but he actually did call it, uh, you know, the title was 
was right there. I forget what the actual title was. Mm-hmm. Somebody <laughs> should do an anthology of, of Cord Wiener Smith inspired stories. You know, they have these tribute yeah, anthologies. But I, I bet a lot of people would like to write Cord Wainer Smith stories, but they're afraid they'll look too much like Cord Wainer Smith stories. <laughs> so, so if you put together a tribute anthology like the ones we had for Gene Wolfe and Ray Bradbury and, uh, uh, and Jack Vance and so and forth. And I heard somebody t- kicking around a, a Tip Tree tribute anthology, or no, um, yeah, Tip Tree tribute anthology, or maybe Russ, uh, and that would be worth reading. Well, is there any significant anniversary coming up? Hmm. I don't think you need to. <laughs> Actually, not to mention Let's with publishing schedules being the way you are, you'd be better off not trying to target yeah. an anniversary date. Fair enough, fair But yeah, that could be interesting. Now, one of the other well, stories. Oh, sorry, go for it. No, I was, I was, my question about uh, both of you and I listened to the I listened to one of the podcasts earlier. Uh, <laughs> what do you What do you make of the idea of the instrumentality, which is probably the central concept in his whole future? Karen, you want to take a shot at that? Um, and when you say making the idea of it, oh. it's it's almost um, it's almost your perfect utopia dystopia setup, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, from the whole tradition back of you know like Brave New World or this perfect day, where you you have this overarching organization that is somehow going to perfect life, and then the perfected life doesn't turn out the way you hope. And usually, interestingly enough, usually the, re- the result is some form of rebellion, whether that rebellion is a sort of small scale and gets crushed or eventually gains momentum and throws. But this instrumentality seemed to have, I don't know, within their own, within their own framework, realized that what they were doing wasn't working and yeah. took steps to dial it back. And that, that was interesting in its own way because it showed a, a level of, not necessarily faith, or maybe, but maybe perhaps even comfort in the idea that institutions are capable of um, I, don't, I don't want to say altruism, more like an enlightened well, um, self plus other interest. Maybe um, one thing I was thinking was it definitely shows a faith that I don't see very much anymore in science fiction in that. the idea that large government bodies can be effective. <laughs> uh-huh. But, you know, then you argue to yourself, well, look at his background, with the, you know, uh, being in China and being around the time of, you know, sort of the both, both the Confucian influence and then the later communist influence. Those are both systems that have very strong faith in the yeah. strength of bureaucracy and its ability to, to be efficient. Although there's a sense, uh, because this is relevant to Alpha Alpha Boulevard, because obviously the the whole story basically begins because of the rediscovery of man, dialing back, as you say, the the utopia. You know, suddenly your your uh, weather control systems aren't working. Suddenly you can actually die by falling off um, uh, a height and so forth. And I think. That's a fascinating idea to me, the idea that you achieve utopia and figure out, okay, this isn't what we wanted. This is, this is not really working. And I think that's related in, again, deferring to Alan Elms' research, that, uh, that there's some evidence that when Leinbarger returned to the States and was teaching at uh, Johns Hopkins uh, after the war, that he became sort of um, disturbed by the sanitation of the United States, by the fact that everything was being... Um, humanized to some extent, you know, that nature was being pushed back and destroyed and um, 
we lived in a, in a society which believed in infinite perfectibility, and, I, and the idea sort of frightened them. Well, so um, there are the stories that we chose to talk about, but I, I actually I, I reread the entire Nestle volume in order to choose which stories that I wanted mm-hmm. to recommend. And I think um, a lot of my opinions about the instrumentality are covered by story, colored by stories that I didn't choose. Because, for instance, uh, Mark Elf and the Queen of the Afternoon talk about um, how the instrumentality first got started. And I find it incredibly disturbing that it was started <laughs> by Germans who'd managed to survive from World War II all the way 11,000 years into the future. <laughs> and yet fitting, not when you think about it. it I, 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 I'm pretty sure that was meant to be disturbing. And, and <laughs> actually, and, and it's only kind of made okay by the way the instrumentality the notion of the instrumentality is interrogated in the later stories. Um, but, but on the other hand, I love some of the characters that are the lords and ladies of the instrumentality. I mean, they have such strong personalities. Even um, the dead lady of Clowntown, um, the, the lady who had been a lady of the instrumentality, when she died, she agreed to let her brain be used for these different AI machines, like, like a, you know, these trivial applications. Um, and and just to kind of while away her post post death immortality, she she ends up organizing a rebellion of the underpeople. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like you do. Um, yeah. More more um, You know, in in the Ballad of Lost Camel and also Nordstrilla. I mean, those are those are really memorable characters. And um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. I mean, the instrumentality is definitely not perfect, and he definitely spends a lot of time thinking about the consequences of it, which, which um, is more than you can say of a lot of science fiction writers. Can I read to you a passage from an earlier novel? Uh, because this is something which I dug out when I was writing another article on Court of Mission. This is novel Rhea, uh, which was a mainstream novel published in 1947 before he'd published any science fiction at all. Mm-hmm. And Rhea is, it's kind of a mystery novel. It's, it's, it's a novel about a, um, a, a war widow after, after the war who's, um, whose hand is crippled for reasons that appear to be psychosomatic. So what she does is she tries to retrace her life during the war to find the sources of her psychosomatic illness, what, what trauma could have led to this. And without getting into the plot, she never, well, spoiler alert again for anybody who wants to read Rhea, she never finds out. But at the very end of the novel, um, she finds uh, herself standing on a beach in North Carolina and having kind of a vision. And if you don't mind, I'll read like for 30 seconds the, um, sure. Go for it. toward the end of the novel. A deep resonance, unlike any sound she had heard before, came to her. Just as she had looked with her eyes at the unseen, so now she strained with her ears for the unheard. She listened, and this time there was no tension, fear, no hypnotized passiveness. She felt that she stood somewhere in the lower part of her own tremendous skull, and that she listened to the fluent, deep roar of a resounding bronze instrument of some kind, something metallic, something which sounded like the instrumentality of man, not like the unplanned noises of nature and the sea. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. I can see so why that would jump out at you. Back. Well, oh. the, the contrast is between nature and between the universe that man has created, you used to use the word man as a generic term. Of course. Uh, and, and, and the world of nature. And I think that's, 
something that he was both anticipating and sort of fascinated by and sort of terrified by. Although, again, you, you, you know, when you go back to Mark Elf and, and what he depicts in, in, you know, before the instrumentality is depicted, it's not, a, it's not anything like a pure state of nature uh, because you've got all these, these rampaging war machines right. terrorizing the countryside left over from previous wars. Manchin yagers and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which, again, I've got a Mark Elf is a really weird story. It's got some really weird things, but uh, but that that is a kind of brilliant. The scene setting is is kind of brilliant. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that that pretty much all his science fiction can be fit into this framework. I mean, in the Nestle volume, there are only half a dozen stories that don't fit into this framework. Um, yeah. I don't, well, let me, not, let me, is, is there any other science fiction author who has been so focused on, on a particular future history? Or, um, well, probably more, it's almost more of a fantasy novel type thing, isn't it? I mean, I'm thinking of Discworld, for example. Mm. Well, Discworld does. I mean, uh, Jack Vance certainly did a lot of stuff in The Dying Earth. Um, and I, I, th- I think the difference is whether you're talking about kind of a galactic empire, which Smith doesn't seem that interested in. I mean, planets are there, but, but then a kind of consistent future history, certainly Heinlein worked one out halfway through his career almost. Mm-hmm. Um, Asimov did some of that, but I, I think all that was a lot less mythical than, than, um, th- than the way Smith did it. I mean... My my sense is that Smith was never even remotely interested in in predicting the future. I don't think he was trying to rationally figure out that these things will happen. He he, he makes up technologies, and as you mentioned uh, in in an earlier podcast, the technologies make no sense whatsoever in many cases <laughs> um, from from any kind of physics standpoint. I think he was interested in creating a world out of language. Yeah. And I think his use of language was way more sophisticated than Asimov or Heinlein or most most other people. So, so the what he's creating is a, is a past. He's creating. A, a, I always read his stories as being set at some enormously distant part in the future, and all the stories he's talking about are the legends and myths that existed thousands of years before this point. Right. He's he's always writing about the future in the past tense. Okay. He's yeah. Saying, yeah. You, you, he'll say things like, well, you've all heard this story. No, we haven't. You're just writing it right now. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, and that's the, that's the framework for the lady who sailed the soul. Absolutely. Yeah. By the way, do you have well, any opinion on the two, the two introductions and the two, the, basically the two separate framing narratives for the lady who sailed the soul? You mean the mother and the daughter? Yeah, there's the mother and the daughter, and then there's the actual narrator. Like, they're two separate framing devices. Yeah. Um, I, I, I always read the story, and I was not able to reread it because I, of reasons I told you before. Uh, I always read that. I, I, I always thought the key thing in the story was the daughter's skepticism about the mother's very, very romantic telling of the tale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which seems to be Smith sort of playing with himself in a sense and playing against his own romantic tendencies. I think he's a wildly romantic writer and I think he knew he had a romantic story. Um, and you've got I mean, Helen America and that's, that's not the one that has Magno Taliano is it? No, it? no. Although in the narrator's introduction to the lady who sailed the soul, he also, um, 
He actually says, other ages were to compare their life with the weird, ugly, lovely story of the go-captain Taliano and the Lady Doroso. Okay, right. So he does it himself. <laughs> he does it himself. So, so basically, he gives you this wildly romantic story, and then he undercuts it twice as, as if to say, I know how ridiculous this is, and this daughter, but you know, do you want to be as skeptical as this daughter is? Um, yeah. And, and he does, in a way, tie that in with his other stories, because when I, when I first read on Jack Planet, you know, uh-huh. the way they treat the horse just seems like an abundance of sentimentality. But then you go back and you see, as you say, the cynical daughter. And you yeah. see the way the other people are treated. And you can see that he actually traces that as an arc of humanity, that, that kind of compassion, that kind of ability to be soft and not be ashamed of it. I think compassion is a huge continuing theme in almost all of his work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, and, and it does come across as sentimental, and I think he must have been aware of this, and I think that's part of the reason for the for the multiple framing devices. And as I say, the the major overarching framing device is the notion that all these stories he's telling are ancient stories uh, from the point of view of whoever's actually telling them. But yeah, the uh, the first paragraph to the lady who sailed the soul is. The story ran, how did the story run? Everyone knew the reference to Helen America and Mr. Gray no more, but no one knew exactly how it happened. Their names were welded to the glittering, timeless jewelry of romance. Sometimes they were compared to Helois and Abouard, whose story had been found among books in a long-buried library. Um, but yeah, exactly what you're talking about, Gary, in, in terms yeah. of, you know, it, this is, a, it's framed in, the, in, in a time where this has been lost to the mist of time. You know, was, I'm actually embarrassed that I didn't notice this before, or, or rather um, notice this importance before, because we've been discussing a lot of the overlap between myth and science fiction, especially when we were looking at the whole dying earth concept. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, it, it didn't strike me as hard in the Smith work until you pointed it out. It's a, it's a very, um, I don't know, there's, there's this sense of nostalgia and longing uh, for, for a past which is our future. Yeah. Uh, there's a sense in which I remember years ago I was writing an essay on Cord Winter Smith for some Salem Press set of things, and it occurred to me that he's not, like I say, he's not thinking about predicting the future. He's not interested in what the future will be like. He's interested in how the future will be remembered. Yeah. Which is a very strange... And, and the kind of human who will be remembering it. And the kind of human who will be remembering it, Exactly. So what you're saying is Cordwainer Smith is anti-steampunk. Um, the opposite of steampunk. <laughs> no, wait, wait, wait. You have to That's a bizarre comparison. First. <laughs> so it was, just, it was just that thought of, you know, steampunk is nostalgic for the future we didn't get. And if Cordwainer Smith is nostalgic for the future we might have. <laughs> I don't think he's even worried about that. Uh, I, I, I would say he's the anti-foundation. Oh, um, okay, yeah. 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 The ultimate rationality. I mean, my my, my point of my, my take on Asimov's foundation is that he was not. Um, he's not a, he, in, that, in that series of stories. He doesn't do very much interesting extrapolation in terms of science fiction. What what Asimov was really good at was writing about management. <laughs> That's fair. Well, the whole future is you know, um, you 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 have, you have basically this. Bible of instructions you're supposed to follow, and here's Harry Salvin with these public service announcements that pop up on television once every 500 years. <laughs> and 
And by doing that, you know, it's like it's like you're controlling the Fed. You're just controlling the future that way. The future is rationalizable in um, in Asimov's terms. And as far as Kurt Wayner Smith is concerned, no, the future is going to be more like myth than science fiction. Mm-hmm. Well, in a way, the instrumentality tried and achieved, in a sense, what um, Foundation was supposed to be doing. Good point. Uh, but then, in a way as well, they came to similar conclusions that the element of chance or chaos is something that you have to embrace, either as something that's going to lead to better things or that may have to be handled. Because um, the, the whole kind of, the Harry Seldom plan got derailed by the mule, even though there was second foundation to try and, and uh, do damage control. But the instrumentality purposely reintroduced chaos because they saw that when they compared the under people, who of course were the class of people who were outside of utopia. There always seems to be that right. sort of happening. When they looked at them and realized that they were getting like smarter and stronger and kind of outpacing humans, they suddenly realized, wait a minute, you know, that element of, of risk or chaos or something that can't be predicted is perhaps something that we need to be human or else we turn into something else. So, so it's, I, I think they actually ironically come to similar conclusions. I, I guess the difference would be that I think that like the instrumentality claim came to be critical of its own perfection. I think um, I think Leinbarger was critical of that perfectibility in a way that Asimov wasn't. Um, I mean, he was, he, I think he was very naive about um, the limits of rationality. It's interesting that the other uh, the other sort of mystical science fiction novel that came out at the beginning of Cordwainer Smith's career was Childhood's End, which again tries to have it both ways because essentially what enables humanity to transcend the overlords is is our imperfections, uh, you know, or, or the fact that we that, that the overlords are perfectly rational, they've got a perfectly scientific society, but they can only go so far with that, and because of our sort of oddly spiritual nature, we can go beyond where they are. Even though Clark himself, in his famous, you know. Um, forward to the book said he didn't agree with any of that. <laughs> <laughs> but was still writing about it. Has a good he was still writing about it because that's where the novel took him. I think that uh, there's, there's been this odd relationship, I think, between science fiction and mysticism. And Clark may be the best example because he was always writing himself into corners. <laughs> he was always writing stories that he could only get out of through some mystical for all that he didn't even believe in. Look at the nine billion names of God. <laughs> you know, I know, you just reminded me of Hyperion for some reason. Hyperion um, books. Dan oh, you Simmons. mean Dan Simmons? Yes, yes. Yeah, that, that went way mystical by the end. <laughs> there is that, yeah, they did. And, and, and it was the same kind of move uh, that I, I'm sure Clark wasn't the first one to do it, but, but the idea that no matter how rational and and uh, extrapolative you are as a writer, sooner or later you're going to write a story that, that paints you into a corner and you've got to get out of it with uh, overminds or overlords or universal consciousness. Um, and there are writers who embrace that from the beginning. If you look at the end of More Than Human by Theodore Sturgeon, it's, it's sort of where the whole novel is headed. Uh, there's nothing very scientific about any of that novel. It deals with telekinesis and telepathy and so forth, and when there's a kind of universal mind that they join at the end, it seems inevitable. When that happens with Clark, you think, oh, you're thinking, oh, crap, I can't get out of the story any other way. <laughs> but, but, you know, writers, when you talk about writers writing themselves into a corner, 
I'm, I'm even suspicious of that. I think sometimes your subconscious pretty much takes you where it wants to go. So you may think you're being written into a corner, but maybe it's just trying to address some things that you don't want to address on a conscious level. Of course, then there then are the writers who don't even shy away from it or don't even try to avoid it. I mean, Stapledon went right straight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, he, he was of an era that, that, still, that still kind of allowed for the blending of the two in some ways because there, there was a definite, um, I would say, even, even, your, even a sense of humanism had a kind of a, a religious sense to it. So when you when you read his, his vision of the universe or universes, so well, different mm-hmm. places, the universe, I should say, you, you kind of really understood where that was coming from when you saw the era that he was writing from. Yeah, although to be fair, he was at the very tail end of that. I mean, he was sort of one of the last last gasps of, of when <laughs> that was the style. Right. Although there are still there are still people who sort of latch on to the idea that, uh, you know, in, in, if you go far enough into the future, it's absolutely impossible to, uh, to, to, to try to create a linear line of speculation between us and, and that future. And I think Stapleton sort of, certainly pioneered the idea. I mean, I've seen uh, on, on, our, on Jonathan, my, our podcast, we, t- we were talking to Rachel Swirsky a couple of weeks ago, and uh, she's got some short stories that are very Stapledonian. And where you can't really get from here to there, and the story doesn't try to show how you get from here to there, but it's still this sort of visionary, uh, I think, believable future. And I think I think Smith was one of the pioneers of that as well. Mm. I mean, I think his invention was based more on language than extrapolation. And uh, I know in the earlier podcast you guys had talked about things like pin lighting and planoforming and so forth, and, and you've got a whole spaceship, I forget which story it is, it's... Uh, um, Maybe the burning of the brain. A whole spaceship, which is Mount Vernon. You're walking around the gardens and you know lawns of uh, of George Washington's estate, and none of this technology is explained or 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 made any kind of sense of at all. You can, you know, we can kind of retrofit planoforming and say, well, it's it's some kind of hyperspace thing, right? <laughs> but all it is for Smith is a word. Mm-hmm. Pin lighting is a word. Oh. Well, also in those early stories, I mean, Scanners Live in Vain and the early planoforming and um, Game of Rat and Dragon. Man, the universe is out to get us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, yeah the I universe did. is a hostile place that humanity is trying to make its way in. And not like well, passively hostile, oh, it's hard to breathe out there. Like actively, oh, there are these things that are going to come kill you. Hostile. Oh, yeah. Dragons and rats. Up. That's the, the game of rat and dragon kind of thing, and uh, that can be looked at metaphorically. But I, I, I think, um, I guess, what I mean by language is that he. One of the things he recognized, which I like in in fiction, is that he's going to make up words that they may be puns in multiple languages, uh, or they may just be words he makes up. I don't know where pen lighting comes from. I don't know where plain informing comes from. Cranching is supposed to be the name of a character. Um, but I think he recognized that the future is not going to talk the same way we do. Um, and even though we can't explain what these terms mean in any rational sense, could you uh, take any, could, could any physicist of the 40s or 50s have any idea what you're talking about when you talk about quarks and strings? Of course not. <clears throat> I mean, we make up language ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the recognition that language will evolve in that way, even though 
his characters frequently talk like 40s tough guys, you know. <laughs> Pen writing was a hell of a way to make a living. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. Well, and of course, we've both talked about the, the fact that the initial setting of Scanners Live in Vain with that domestic drama. Um, yeah. So 50s. So 50s. So painfully 50s. <laughs> right. But I, I, I'm not sure that you can blame a 50s writer for being a 50s writer. <laughs> we never do, but we still point it out. <laughs> but the interesting thing, I mean, uh, you know, and again, we, we pointed out last time, uh, The Lady Who Sailed the Soul had a very different take on, on uh, you know, male-female relationships. And, and honestly, um, the Nordstrillan women, the ladies of the instrumentality, I mean, you never see that kind of woman again, frankly, in, in his fiction. No, and the, and, and well, they're, Depending on whether you're counting Kamel as one of his female characters, who oh yeah, just, of course she's awesome. She's she's terrific. I mean, she's amazing. Based um, on his cat, I understand. <laughs> Apparently well, so. <laughs> not meaning to say she's not a woman. I'm just saying that the the, the, the inspirations are from a different direction. <laughs> I, I, wasn't his cat named Melanie? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so I mean, he was obviously very fond of cats and that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> But, but but the uh, as Karen points out, disturbingly fond of cats. Apparently, well, at the at the end, even at the end of Alpha Alpha Boulevard, he's in his what, he's in his hospital room or something, and he's thinking, "Then no, it's not that. It's the end of the game of Rap and Dragon." Rap and Dragon. Yeah, that was a disturbing scene. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's thinking, "Wow, that nurse is cute, but she's nothing compared to my cat." <laughs> uh huh. The Lady Who Sailed the Soul, I think, is the only human female character he has as a main character in any of his fiction, which is odd because his two novels prior to that were both about female protagonists. I would love to see those. Um, Where did you say you sourced it from? I, got, I have the novels. I, I, mean, I, I don't have them in front of me. I'm sourcing this from an article I did several years ago. Corolla I mean, and you can find them on Amazon easily? Are they in print still? Rhea is, I think, available maybe even as an ebook. Okay, cool. And it's really fascinating. Corolla, I'm not sure of. Uh, no, maybe it's, it's, it's the other, the third novel he wrote before he became a science fiction published writer it was called At Tomsk, which was a kind of nuclear thriller hmm. that he published under the name of Carmichael Smith. That, I'm pretty sure, is available as an ebook. So, Felix Forrest. Carmichael Smith. Any other pseudonyms we need to be aware of? <laughs> I think those are the only ones that uh, he published under. Okay. okay. So when did the truth about Line Barger's identity come become widely known to the uh, science fiction community? Um, the, and the one person who could actually give us the exact date to answer that, unfortunately, has recently passed away. But yeah. Fred Pohl was the one who had been buying his stories. And I don't think there were stories quite as dramatic as the stories about Tiptree, where people, you know, finding the address, the return address on manuscripts and tracking down her home in Washington. Um, I think he finally simply explained to Fred Pohl who he was in a letter or something. And he may have shown up at a convention. <clears throat> and if I'm not mistaken, I remember Fred saying something to him. He may have, he may have been to one or two conventions in D.C. completely anonymously before anybody had any idea who he was. Hmm. Do we have any real um, present-day counterparts of people who are able to do that in this, in this over-digitized and informationally um, intense age? Well, there's K.J. Parker. 
Um, there's Thomas Pynchon, I guess. <laughs> but uh, and yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's it's very possible. There's Greg Egan. Greg Egan. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's it's more of a challenge to do it today than it would have been back then. But uh, I know from a friend of mine who actually took a course from Linebarger at Johns Hopkins. Uh, that nobody at Johns Hopkins had any clue at all, and he never gave any clue in class, that he had a, a secret life as a science fiction writer. <laughs> and my friend would have taken the class from, from him sometime in the, toward the end of his life, probably the last year of his life. It's fascinating. I still can't, can't imagine having taken, you know, like taking a class from somebody with that kind of mind. I mean, the fact that he wasn't just such an inf uh, uh, a remarkable science fiction writer, but when you think about the mark that he left on his professional field as well. Well, in a lot of ways, not only the book Psychological Warfare, but the, the international relations course which he taught. And Because my friend became a historian, a technology historian, not entirely as a result of that class, but he said one of the things he realized was that Linebarger was the at least the only one teaching at that time in the mid-60s um, from from a global rather than American perspective. In other words, he could wow. see the way Chinese, he could see the way the Chinese government viewed international relations and the way the Japanese government, and so to some extent, the multicultural attitudes that he brought to class were very eye-opening for the students who previously had studied foreign relations or what they called foreign relations back then, only from the point of view of American public policy, not realizing there are other policies as well. So he was very much aware of that and apparently uh, was at the same time or a couple of years earlier actively engaged in uh, well not actively opposing the Vietnam War but refusing to get involved with it because he was apparently called upon because of his expertise in psychological warfare and he basically said no you're completely misunderstanding this war um, this, the, he, he was saying what we now know to be the case that you know the issue here is not <clears throat> the red Chinese taking over Vietnam, the issue here is Vietnam being besieged by yet another foreign power, the worst one of which happens to be China. Um, so, so his take on that was that, um, um, well, basically we shouldn't have been involved in the first place because if we'd ever understood historically the relationships between Vietnam and China, we would never have been worried about that uh, imperialist tendency. And it turns out, of course, he was right. Wow, that can't have made him many friends at the Pentagon. Um, I don't think he was working at the pen. You know, one of the things that I'm curious about, uh, because we're, we're now back in the early to mid-60s, and there's been a lot of discussion about, well, was he the guy in uh, the 50-minute hour in Robert Linder's psychoanalytical case histories? I, I tend to think not. What I'd like to know, since both of them were government consultants, both of them were in D.C. in the early 60s, did he ever meet James Tiptree? <laughs> there's, there's a story in that. There has to be. A history There's or a story. probably is, you're right. <laughs> Although one thing that, you mentioned the Robert Winder book, um, one thing that really surprised me from Elm's essay, at some point, and I'm not seeing it in the copy I've got in front of me, but I remember he said, um, and I found this out by having a conversation with, Lin, with one of Weinberger's psychotherapists, and I was like, wait, what? I thought confidentiality meant that you couldn't do that. Because I remember Winder burned all his all his case histories uh, upon his death. Yeah, which is what you're supposed to do. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know what what he meant by that. But like I say, nobody has done more extensive research about this kind of thing than um, 
than Helms has. No, so I mean, I, from a pur- pur- purely voyeuristic point of view, I'm like, yay! <laughs> but part of the time, can't wait. You know, after the... But, he, the, but remember, he sounds like a man who was very, very good at compartmentalizing his life. I gather he was, yeah. Uh, so there, he might not have upset anything that would, you know, violate any official secrets acts or anything like that. Oh, I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure he didn't. No, people living, yeah. moving in that world are very, very circumspect about that sort of thing. I was as thinking more about the, the professional ethics as the psychotherapist. <laughs> right. Um, but there were things that, uh, I mean, some of the stuff that Alan found out, the cross-dressing business, for example, um, which apparently is something that he did at home, and that, that was something he picked up from Genevieve Leinberger. Um, so it, it strikes me that there may have been a lot of stuff for him to be in psychotherapy about. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you said you picked it up from Genevieve? No, no, uh, Alan picked it up from Je- Genevieve, oh, not, gotcha. that, okay, not that Weinbarger did. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's, there, there's, a, there's a small uh, cult of people, well, you saw, you mentioned the concordance, who are just trying to figure out everything you can um, uh, about Weinbarger, but I think the only way to really have any reliable information is to find sources. And even with the sources, I mean, the whole idea that Alpha Alpha Boulevard may have been about an earl, about his first wife or about an, an earlier girlfriend apparently disturbed Genevieve. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and that sort of thing. But, but it makes perfect sense psychologically. It makes sense that he would work out those issues in his stories. And the idea that he would be... Um, he would He would constantly present these ultra-romantic scenarios and then undercut them with frame stories and um, and distancing of various devices suggests to me that he had that kind of dual attitude in his own life. That On the one hand, he was somebody who was completely idealistic and romantic, and on the other hand, he had too much experience with practical uh, politics and international relations and psychological warfare to be very, to, to be taken in by his own romanticism. Well, when you mention his romanticism and, and the earlier relationship, it's a relationship that um, actually led him to attempt suicide. Yeah. Which would tell you something about the degree of romanticism that he, he sort of had in his bones. Yeah, that surprised the heck out of me from, from uh, Alan Elm's essay as well. But it, it's funny, I remember when Julie Phillips' phenomenally good biography of Tiptree came out a few years ago, people were asking, you know, are there any other science fiction authors who could support that kind of treatment? And pretty much everyone's like, Cordwainer Smith. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> you know, because so many writers, they their lives actually aren't that exciting. You know, they, they write. They sit in a place and they write books. I beg your pardon. We're <laughs> <laughs> not that drab. <laughs> Well, but, you, you know, compared to having worked in the OSS in World War II, you know, it's a, it's a little different. Well, fair enough, but um, I think that there are a few people who, life, their lives become more interesting, so to say, after, they, after they're dead. Mm. In the sense that sometimes there are things they've been hiding, sometimes there are things that, um, there's some people who really only come forward in terms of being public people from the moment they're published. And there's not much that goes on in terms of finding out about their early lives until it's time for a biography. Right, right. And then, and then you dig into that early life and you discover, oh my God, there's lots of stuff for a psychiatrist here to deal with. So, <laughs> yeah. so that's why I say it that way. As, as you say, in terms of actual occupations, yes, Smith is definitely top tier 
in terms of what he did, but in terms of what people go through. Um, you know, they, they often say it's like it's like comedians are usually like either like might depressive or something like that because this is how they're working through things. Right. Writers are supposed to to have these these various feelings that they're 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 trying to exercise and that usually in, in, in indicates some sort of interesting earth life. I think that um, yeah, I, I I agree. I think that the question uh, that you were really asking about what other science fiction writer was what other science fiction writer had a life that would be really interesting to people who aren't even interested in science fiction. Mm. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and Smith might fit that. I mean, the, I, I'm guessing that Julie Phillips's book about, uh, about Tiptree probably sold more copies than any single Tiptree novel or book ever has. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> well, I'm, it's, it's unfortunate, but I, I, I'd almost be willing to stand by that bet. Um, I think Leinbarger had such a bizarre story. I mean, all over the world, you know, working out a silver loan to China when he was a teenager, Sun Yat-sen, his godfather, and so forth. That that's a fascinating story, just apart from his writing. Exactly. Uh, and you get, yeah, beyond that, you're talking, I mean, like Julie Phillips is working with, with Ursula Le Guin now, and um, she's had a fairly interesting life, but she grew up the son of, the daughter of two professors, and uh spent her life largely in academia and became a writer. Uh, it's, it's nothing like the OSS and, and being in Africa when you're a little girl and being a spy in uh, China or, 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 or Japan. So to that extent, Smith is one of the few characters in science fiction who had such a bizarre, interesting life that uh, you could probably write an interesting book about it even if he'd never written a single science fiction story. Right, right. Huh. Well, we I don't think, though, one of the things I think that happened with both Chip Tree and, and, and Smith is that I think they both died before anybody expected them to. Um, because Smith, uh, Tip Tree was at least had a number of correspondents, and she was writing to Le Guin, and she was writing to Russ, and she was writing to Jeff Smith and other people. Uh, I don't remember ever seeing or tracking down a single interview with Leinbarger. None, none that I've heard of. As far as I know, he, he knew some people in the community. He had very limited relations. But I, I don't think he, somebody might listen to this and correct me, I don't think he was ever a guest at a convention. I don't think he was ever a panelist. I don't think he was ever interviewed by any of the fanzines. So he's, in some ways, much more of a mystery in that sense than even uh, um, Alice Sheldon was. And, of course, he died even in his 50s. Right. So that's, you know... And tragic, frankly, I mean, compared to what he might have done, you know, in the next decade, I, I'd, I'd say that qualifies as tragically young. Yeah, my sense was always that, uh, you know, he was interested in uh, developing his world. There are a lot of obviously unfilled gaps in the whole instrumentality thing. And I always had the sense that, okay, when he retired from being a professor, he was going to give us the big epic instrumentality. Maybe not, maybe not novels, but maybe at least, you know, more of these stories. Somebody once called these, um, I think it was Patrick Perinder, <clears throat> epic fables. And I thought that was a great term to talk about a lot of science fiction short stories. And Smith is the best example of it, where you read something like, let's say, Scanners Live in Vain, which is, for a lot of people, the first Smith story they ever read. And you, you go through the story and you immediately realize there's an enormously complex future history behind this, which he hasn't explained at all. Yeah. And where is it? And so in one short story, uh, 
he conveys a whole epic sensibility. And then he does this repeatedly, and you feel like you're filling in, you know, more and more small pieces in a huge mosaic, which is never going to quite be complete. Yeah. And that almost runs counter to the way many people say a short story should go. Because right. there's so much building behind it, and that's, that's usually what you need to the novels and novellas. And the trilogies. <laughs> And the trilogies, and I, 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 I'm guessing that most other writers, given you know a huge concept like the instrumentality, would have had uh, a wheel of time series out of a ten or eleven or twelve. <laughs> yeah, when you've done that much world building. <laughs> right, but to, yeah, that's the other. Well, Tolkien, I guess, uh, did a lot of world building before he ever started writing Lord of the Rings, um, but. To put that much work into something which um, is, you don't even know if you're ever going to be able to sell a single story of it. Uh, and he had trouble selling scanners. Uh, he'd written the story in War Number 81Q, I think, back in the late 1920s. Yeah. Which implied that there was, you know, even then he was working on this sort of elaborate um, world building. Uh, and then he just gives us little bits and pieces of it over a career that really was a very short career. What, about 15 years of publishing? Yeah. Actually, I mean, it, it is kind of the hallmark of, of that's one of the difference between the writers who write full time and the writers who also have a day job. Mm. Although sometimes, I mean, mm. well, time, time is important, but there's some people, their pace is just different regardless of whatever else they have happening in their lives. Yeah, good point. I mean, Ted Chang is the, the classic example of that as well. Well, I mean, there's, I, I can see, because uh, Ted's, Ted's world building consists of conceptualization of the methods of science, not any particular world. Mm -hmm. So every story he writes rebuilds a world from within, but it's always within that sort of notion of, you know, science as a way of thinking or as process. But I can see the temptation of, you know, once you've gone to the trouble of building a world, and this, they, used to, they used to tell writers this. They used to tell pulp writers, you know, get yourself a franchise. If you want to sell more than one story to amazing stories, you've got to have um, a, a particular universe you're writing. Well, well Karen, you're, you, you must have this temptation. There are lots of stories you could write in the world of the best of all possible worlds. Isn't it a temptation just to settle in and do some more of those? Um, <laughs> you, you put me on the spot. Of course, you're writing the sequel right now. Um, well, well, yes, of course there is because it's it's already there. But at the same time, it depends on <clears throat> it depends on a number of things. Sometimes you have that urge up to the point where you want to describe or explain certain things, and then you could actually theoretically get bored with it and want to try something fresh because you've already as you said earlier, written yourself into certain corners. Mm -hmm. and, and then you're like, okay, well, if I want to explore this other idea, it's going to have to be a different world again. So, um, so there can be some variation. I think, I think that um, there are also more successful ways of doing it. I mentioned Discworld earlier. And one of the reasons mm -hmm. that I always appreciate Discworld is that you can have some wildly magical things happening. You can also have some very practical things happening. When I first started reading the um, Tiffany Aiken stories, I wasn't even quite sure they were set in this world. It actually felt so much yeah. like a, a version of England that for a minute I was like, wait a minute, is he not writing 
like full fantasy anymore. So it's a sort of slightly fantastical real world story. So you, you get that nice variation because that particular world is that large and he lets it be that large and that varied. Um, some people, they write entire galaxies or universes that are actually still fairly monocultural in a way. Mm-hmm. So, so when they write themselves into a corner, they really write themselves into a corner. <laughs> you really know that there's only one type of story that's really going to come out of this kind of world. And, and they tend to have to break away and do something completely different if they want to tell a different type of story. I think that's, yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that there are, there are worlds, there are invented worlds or invented universes that are just great story machines. Uh, and Discworld may be the greatest story machine any genre writer has ever come up with. <laughs> uh, but in a more limited way, I mean, you look at Le Guin's The Ecumen, and basically mm-hmm. she has a, a handful of inventions and a set of pretty, pretty um, acceptable hard SF rules and within that, she can do almost anything she wants to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's an amazing setting. So there, there, are, there are things that enable you to do anything, and there are others that are a little bit too um, maybe restrictive. I think this may have happened with Larry Niven in his Known Space series, where you set up too many rules and have too much backstory, and pretty soon the weight of all that backstory just... You, 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 it's something I was talking to George Martin about in San Antonio, where you get to the point where... You have to depend on your readers to tell you what you wrote three or four volumes earlier because you can't keep it, you can't keep track of it. And, and they will do that for you. They will have all the wikis and the concordances and everything nice. Yeah, and exactly. They know. God bless them. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, well, we've been going for a little over an hour, so we should probably look at wrapping up. Um, and one of the things I, I wanted to ask you, Gary, in terms of, of maybe uh, wrapping up a little bit is is what would you say... If, if you had to pick one, I mean, what would you say Smith will be most remembered for? I mean, what is his legacy? Is, is there any way to encapsulate that, do you think? Um, well, when you're dealing with a writer of principally short stories, no, I don't think it's possible to do that. I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think it will be in Australia, uh, his one novel, because I don't think it works that well. Yeah, uh, it's, frankly. yeah. But... Uh, I'm guessing that of the ones that will continually get anthologized, Scanners Live in Vain is certainly one of them, and Alpha Ralpha Boulevard is one. Um, and beyond that, um, it, 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 it scatters around quite a bit. I mean, the, the, I, the Burning of the Brain, uh, the Ballad of Lost Kamel. It could be that the Ballad of Lost Kamel will be the one that ends up having the broadest appeal because it is... It does have that sense of a kind of uh, a romantic epic about it, of, of an oral tradition. I was um, kind of thinking about the way that Scanners Live in Vain has, has had so much staying power, and it was the first thing he <laughs> wrote and published in this field, which is, I mean, talk I about think, hitting it out of the park right off the bat. And I think it still has that effect on every new reader. Uh, the, the thing that struck me, I think you were both talking about this in an earlier podcast, is that there is this sense, no matter how late you come to Cordwainer Smith, that you haven't read anything like this. Mm-hmm. And Scanners, I think, still works that way. And so and I'm guessing that Scanners will remain his most anthologized story for that reason. Mm. <coughs> what are your thoughts? Karen? Um, I still have... My soft spot is still for Alpha Ralph and Boulevard. <laughs> mm. Sorry. <laughs> no, that one seemed uh, to really grab you. Yeah, yeah, it, it really did. And, and I think perhaps 
different stories. I mean, you talked about Sway the Bell versus Lost Camille being more accessible to people. I think there's also a level of accessibility about Alpha Alpha Boulevard where it's the, the least amount the least about technology, in a sense, even the least about sociology, and very much more uh, about this this sort of internal question, you know, how, how are we who we are? Uh-huh. Um, that's that's just so that's just so fundamental. That um, yeah, for me, that's that's really the favorite. Wasn't there a line in that story? I wanted to mention this for Karen Burnham. That, that, wasn't it in Alpha Ralpha Boulevard for? A character is saying something like, "How do you learn to? How do I learn to be me?" Mm-hmm. Oh, something and, like that. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is totally the title of a Greg Egan story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep. Fair enough. <laughs> that's a good point. Go on about that. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I keep coming back to um, you know I, I was introduced to Cord Winter Smith by my father. And at one point, I guess I was late high school or early college, and he and we got the Nesso edition. I, I think I got it for him. Um, mm. You know, when I when I finally had my own money, probably the best birthday present I ever managed to get my dad. And um, we started kind of going through it together. And I just you talk about Alpha Alpha Boulevard's accessibility, um, and I just remember back when I was like nineteen, he and I both looked at each other and went. Yeah, what the fuck? (laughs) I mean, it was just, it was not like any science fiction we'd read before. We were both very well read in terms of your your general swath of science fiction. And it just kind of, I don't want to say bounced off. We both knew there was something going on there, but we felt like we didn't quite reach it. I do feel now that I, I have a much better handle on the story and why it's important, but... I, I wouldn't be surprised if it had struck a lot of readers at the time that way of like just a, you know, it's so almost orthogonal to what most science fiction does. Right. Yeah. Um, whereas maybe, Scanners, maybe um, you know, Scanners is much more traditionally science fictional. And I think what it says about groupthink and group dynamics is very universal. But yeah, I think I think overall, just the the whole instrumentality universe and all its, its suite of short stories, I think, uh, is just a, a remarkable achievement. On I think I think what happened to you and your father may have happened to a lot of science fiction fans over the years as as they discovered the story, because there's always this sense that I'm not getting this because I'm dumb. And then you go to a convention and you talk to a friend, and well, they explain everything to you. There, there, there are people who, well, you didn't understand that story because you haven't read the other 400 Heinlein stories that explain the origin of the universe, and therefore you don't know what you're talking about. But when you when you read a Cordwainer Smith story and you went to another science fiction fan, they were as puzzled as you were. It's a great equalizer. Nobody could make anything out of this. There is something to be said about that. Okay, well, we should probably leave it on that note, but uh, Gary, I want to thank you so much for, for dropping by and spending some time with us. Excellent, Thanks for inviting me. It was fun. And um, let's see, with any luck, we will be back next season. We'll be back in the winter. I think we've already talked a little bit about our plans, and if we uh, come up with any any other interesting people with uh, things to say in the meantime, well, you never know. We might have another special episode. So anyway, thanks as always for listening. Take care. Till next time.